The following recording is from the Parramatta Christian Church pulpit series. These sermons are freely available at pcc.org.au. Uh, if you're visiting with us, we've been journeying through the book of Hebrews, uh, the first 10 chapters. And people have asked, why just the first 10? Well, it's because it's been a part of a bigger series. Our theme for the year has been remaining in Christ. And so we've really wanted to drill down into these first 10 chapters where the writer really expounds robust Christology, a doctrine of Christ and the supremacy of Christ. Um, Chapters 11, 12, and 13 are more kind of the practical application of all of that. And we want to get to those chapters, and we will do that at some point in the future. But as part of this series, we really wanted to focus on Christ, the Supreme One. And so that's where we've been journeying. Uh, We we land now in, in chapter 10. And it's a a wonderful passage. And in many ways, uh, commentators feel that this was the conclusion of the writer's sermon. Uh, As you've been journeying with us through Hebrews, we've been talking about how Hebrews is written like a homily or a sermon. And uh, many uh, commentators believe that this is like the high point uh, of his sermon. And we can see that because in this chapter, all of the four main themes that we've looked at and talked about uh, 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 that govern the book of Hebrews are right here in this passage. Uh, There is the theme of the exaltation of Christ that we've seen over and over, where he lifts up Christ as the supreme one. Uh, There is the theme of self-reflection and examination, where he challenges us to look at our own hearts. Uh, There is uh, the theme of looking ahead with expectancy for the coming of Christ and our King that's going to return. And, And finally, and probably most significantly, the theme of exhortation or encouragement, where he's really wanting uh, this community that he's writing to, to hold firmly to their faith. That's been kind of this big idea that's governed the whole book, this this theme that God has spoken to us in Christ. God has revealed his final and ultimate word in Christ, and we need to heed that. Don't ignore it. Don't um, uh, turn your ear away. Don't harden your heart. He says, hear the word and respond to the word. And so this is this final call and appeal that he gives out to this community. And so um, uh, I've entitled this message, The Call to Persevere. And it reminds me of Micah and uh, his swimming career. Um, when, when our kids were little, we, we threw them in the pool and they took to it like ducks to water and they loved swimming. But as they got older and older, particularly Micah, it got harder and harder to motivate him to swim. And we had several conversations with him over the years of him wanting to quit, particularly around winter. Nobody wants to go to swimming squads in the middle of winter. And we had to come up with all kinds of reasons and, and kind of help him to be inspired again and reminded him of all that he's achieved and kind of hold forward the hope of what he can achieve if he doesn't give up. And, and then he gave up for a little while and, and then he came back to it. And, and then finally, I think in year 11, he kind of went, that's it. I've had enough. No more swimming. And his last swimming carnival, I don't think he went in anything. I think he went in one race. Um, and again, it was that same idea that we had to, as parents, keep finding different ways to keep him motivated and keep him inspired so he wouldn't quit. And it's a bit like that in this chapter where the writer kind of marshals all these different arguments with that end, with that purpose that he wants this church, this community to not give up, to not quit, but to persevere. 
And so the way this chapter is structured is very, very simple, very basic. There's kind of two big sections. The first section from uh, verses 1 to 18 is, I guess, a summary of all his doctrinal arguments that he's been articulating throughout the rest of the book. And here he pulls them all together in this kind of final, concise statement in these first 18 verses. And then the second part from verse 19 all the way to the end to verse 39 is his exhortation, his encouragement, his attempt to motivate to keep this church motivated in persevering in Christ and so that's where we're going to really spend the bulk of our time this morning so let me pray and we'll get into it father thank you for your word thank you that in Hebrews it says that it is living and active and so Lord we come with open hearts to receive all that you have for us and I pray that you'll help me uh, to communicate it faithfully and help us to be good listeners who are open and responsive to your word this morning in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. So this first bit I'm just going to go real quick from verses 1 to 18 because it's just a summary and I want to put this slide up on the screen uh, because it's just summary statements uh, that the writer makes here. And so verse 1, the law is only a shadow. He's been talking about that all along, that the law, the old covenant system, is just a shadow of the things that were to come. And the reason it's a shadow is because it can never achieve what it was intended to achieve. It is inadequate. It is limited. He says in verse uh, 2 and 3 that you know, the same sacrifices repeated endlessly could never make someone perfect. It, it was impossible. Uh, otherwise, they would have stopped doing it. And so he says, because it was inadequate and limited, God instituted something new. Verses 5 onwards. It's about God setting in place a new covenant, a new order in Christ. And in verse uh, 9 and 10, he says that Jesus came to do the will of the Father. And because of that, God has set aside the first and now is kind of leading them into this second new order in Christ. And verse 11 onwards, the writer is encapsulating all the things that he's been telling us that, that Jesus' work on the cross is final because it was, in, it was completely adequate. It was completely sufficient. It was once for all and it accomplished and achieved God's purpose to save us. Christ did what the old covenant, the old law, the sacrificial system could not do, which is to make us perfect. And through his blood, we have been made perfect, verse 14. By one sacrifice, he has made perfect, not just temporarily, but forever, all those who are being made holy. Christ has accomplished this incredible work of God to save us once for all. And then verse 15 to 18, he reminds us that because of that, God has instituted this idea of a new covenant. And this new covenant is a covenant of grace. And it is a covenant where the Holy Spirit is in our hearts, working from the inside out to transform us into the image of Christ. And God has put his laws in our minds and in our hearts. And because of that, we've been forgiven and we've been made right. And now we relate to God as our Father by the Holy Spirit who lives in us in us. It's a covenant of grace and a covenant of inner transformation. So that's the doctrinal summary. First 18 verses done. Verse 19. This is where we jump in. And he begins like he often does in this book with a therefore. Therefore. And so throughout the book of Hebrews, these therefores appear at critical points because he summarizes theology. He teaches doctrine. He gives us great truths to think about and reflect on. But he 
wants to use that to make a point. And there's a therefore that connects the doctrine with the application or the exhortation or the challenge and, that he wants to bring. And here he gives us three keys to persevering. Three things that he wants to say that will help us to persevere in holding on to Jesus. And then he gives us two rationales of why we are to do that. So that's what we're going to look at. And these three keys come in the form of these three let us statements that we see here. So I'm going to just read verses 19 to 25. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God. Here's the first one. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Here's the second one. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider, here's the third one, how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up, meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Three keys. The first one is come to God as our Father. And I love what Ed shared, and I love that song because that's exactly what the writer of the Hebrews is saying. And he gives us the reason. He's saying, since we have confidence, since what Jesus has done has brought a new and living way to us, come before God as your Father. That's the first key. How do we do that? Well, we see in chapter 5 where he uses the example of Jesus, we come to God In prayer, we come to God and we can enter the very holy of holies, we're told. We enter the very throne room of God, chapter 12 tells us, before myriads of angels. That's where we come to. We come within the veil, inside the tent, as it were, into the very holy place of the old covenant. And he's saying, come, come to God as your father. Every obstacle of your sin, of your guilt has been removed. And so you can come. And like Jesus, we found in, in, in chapter 5, we, we receive all that we need in our time of tribulation. Chapter 4 tells us, come before the throne of God and receive the grace and the mercy that you need in your time of, of need. In, when you face temptation and when you face opposition and when you face challenge, come, come. And we see that just like Jesus did, that all of heaven's resources are available to us. All of God's resources as the king who sits enthroned above every principality and power is available to sustain and carry us through. Which is why in Romans 8, Paul reflects this same idea. And he says this, How will he who has given you the Son withhold any good thing from you? And that's written in the context of persecution and present suffering and hardship. And then 2 Peter 1.3, Peter says the same thing. God has given you everything you need for life and godliness. Again, in the context of persecution and suffering. The idea of Hebrews is that is one key. Come to God as your Father. He will give you all the resources you need to hold on, to endure, to stay true to Him. He will sustain you. He will carry you. He will give you the grace you need. His grace is sufficient. Come to him. It's like, it's like having a, a key card. Uh, again, I'm going to use Micah as an example because he's not here. He's going he's gonna <laughs> to tell me off all these. I didn't even ask his permission. 
One of the things we've been trying to teach him to do is to manage his money. And he has access to a key card and he's got two accounts. And we've been trying to tell him to kind of separate his accounts and put money into one that he can't access from the key card so that he can save money. It's just a good financial principle. And sometimes we can live that way. We, we have this incredible bank account full of God's resources and a key card to access it. And we don't. And we live like we have nothing. We live like we're paupers. We live like we don't have the resources we need to continue to hold firm to God when God has given us all that we need for life and godliness. So the writer of the Hebrews says, come to God as your father. That's the first key that will help you to endure, that will help you to persevere. The second one, the second let us, is let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess. So he's saying, Again, he's making it, let's hold tightly to this thing. But look at the reason. For he who promised is faithful. The second key to persevering is to trust in the character of God. Is to trust in who God is. He says, he who promised is faithful. See, our confidence in, in, in being able to persevere and endure doesn't result out of us being able to do all the right things, so us having the strength to endure and, and stay true and remain faithful to God. No, we, we can hold firm the hope that we have, that we profess. We can continue to, to uh, express our faith in Jesus and be a witness because we are confident in who we have put our trust in. Which is why he takes us back into chapter 6 where he reminds us that God is utterly dependable. And he uses the example of God's faithfulness to Abraham to illustrate that. And he said that God has sworn by himself because there's no one greater to show that he is completely dependable. And that he will fulfill his promise. And the writer says that like that, because he was faithful to Abraham, we can have the same confidence that the same God will be Faithful in the same way. And so in in chapter 11, he goes on to express and unpack and articulate the many, many heroes of faith who found God to be faithful to his promise. And he says, like them, we too can hold firmly to the faith that we're professing in the midst of persecution, in the midst of opposition. Hebrews 11 talks about those who believed in the coming of the heavenly city, even though they never saw the fulfillment of that. Why? Because in 1 to 6, he says, because they were convinced that God exists and he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And this hope is not wishful thinking. It's not pie in the sky, sweet by and by. It's this confident assurance in the God that we have believed in. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. The things that we can't even see it. We are absolutely certain of the realities of that. And that's why in Hebrews 6, he says, this hope is like an anchor for your soul. It is firm and it is secure. And in the midst of persecution and challenge and opposition and discouragement and frustration, you can hold firmly because your confidence is in the character of God. Trust in the character of God. One Bible commentator, Leon Morris, he says this, Christians can hold fast their hope in this way because behind it is a God in whom they can have full confidence. God is thoroughly to be relied on. When he makes a promise, that promise will infallibly be kept. He has taken the initiative in making the promise and he will fulfill his purposes in making it. What a powerful truth. What is this hope that we're supposed to hold on to? 
Well, in chapter 2, he tells us that this hope is that death has been defeated. We're not slaves anymore. He tells us in chapter 2 again that this hope is the hope of glory, that one day we will rule and reign with Christ. In, in chapter 4, he tells us that this hope is the eternal Sabbath rest of God. In chapter 5, he says this hope is eternal salvation. In chapter, seven, uh, chapter 9, he says this hope is eternal redemption. And as we go broader into the rest of the New Testament, we see that this hope is that we will be with God forever. We see that this hope is of a restored and renewed heaven and earth where God makes everything new. We see in Revelation, this hope is that one day Jesus will come back, not as the suffering Savior, but as the triumphant King and Make everything perfect and right and just. And every tear will be wiped away. And every, every curse will be reversed. And, and sin will be no more. That is the hope that he says, let's hold on to. Because the same God who was faithful to Abraham, who was faithful in Christ, will be faithful to the end. So hold on. You know, I saw this, this truth, this, this, this conviction, this key of perseverance in the life of my mom. And in particular, the last few days of her life, we had the incredible privilege of spending some really amazing time with her in hospital in ICU. And she had this incredible confidence in the character of God, in the truthfulness of God to his promises, and, and this unshakable faith and this incredible hope, this expectancy that she would be with Jesus, that she would see lost loved ones, that she would see my sister who passed away as an infant. She was longing for and expectant and excited to be with Jesus. And I'm thinking, that's this. The writer says, you know, when you're going through hard times, when you're facing uh, physical illness and pain and suffering, when you're facing persecution, hold on to the character of God because it's a firm and secure anchor for your soul. The third key he gives us, and let us consider how we may spur one another on. This is about encouraging one another, spurring on one another in the context of community. He says that don't forsake meeting together. This is such a powerful key, the power of community. And spurring on is an interesting word. It actually means, get this, to irritate <laughs> or to exasperate. Uh, you know, I want to put it more pleasantly and say to provoke or challenge. But it is to irritate one another. He says irritate one another. To love and to good deeds. Get in each other's face. This is such a profound key. The power of community. And, and some of the things that he, he says here, the inferences are so awesome. Just think about this. He says, let us consider. That word means give careful thought and attention. I wonder how many of us come to church that way. How many of us come to Connect Group that way? Having thoughtfully considered how we might irritate one another to love and good deeds. Did you come to church this morning thinking, God, who can I irritate this morning to love Jesus more, to love each other more, to do good deeds? Who can I exasperate? Who can I provoke? Who can I challenge to love more, to do more good deeds? I know some of you have a particular ministry in this area. <laughs> but that's what the writer says. 
Consider, come having prayed and thought about them. Say, God, will you use me to encourage my brothers and sisters today? Over coffee or as I greet them or as we have conversations and catch up. God, I don't want to just come. I want to be used by you to stir and stimulate and encourage my brothers and sisters who might be struggling to hold on. Consider, he says. And then he says, how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. You see, the thing is, you can do faith on your own. There's a growing movement of people who don't go to church anymore because they think, well, it's just Jesus and me. And I can kind of spend time with Jesus on my own and be alone. Yes, you can. You can have faith on your own. You can even have hope on your own, which are two of the three great Christian virtues. You know the one you can't have on your own? Love. You can't do it. You can't sit there going, oh, I'm just going to spur myself to love and good deeds. He says, no, one another. You, you can't do this on your own. That's why community is so powerful in local churches, in connect group. Is that you can do this only in community. Love and good deeds. The other thing he says that, that's so profound is that the reason for us coming together is more about giving to others than receiving. What a challenge that is. I wonder when we come to church, do we think about, oh, what are you going to do for me, God? What are you going to do for me? How are you going to bless me, God? What are other people going to do for me today? Are they going to encourage me and are they going to bless me? He says, no, come with the attitude of you spurring on others. But again, in God's economy, uh, isn't it amazing how as we bless others, that we ourselves are blessed. As we encourage others, we ourselves are encouraged. As we give, we receive. That's the way God's kingdom works. And so our heart and our priority is say, God, how can I bless someone else today? And as we do that in faith, God encourages us and builds us up. And somehow as we serve our brothers and sisters, we are edified and we are built up. He says, come with that attitude. And notice the last thing he says here is that, Some are in the habit of not doing this. They've given up meeting together. And I want to say to you, as a pastor, not coming to church can become a habit. That's what he says here. But you know what's interesting? It doesn't start off as a habit. A habit starts off as a legitimate excuse, a legitimate reason. Whatever that might be for you to not be at church. I don't know of anyone who's not in church because they decided they were not going to be a part of church anymore. And maybe you know some people who've just intentionally made that decision. Maybe because they were hurt or offended or possible. But generally, people just skip church. They miss church. And after a while, it becomes relatively easy to miss church. And then it becomes a habit not to be at church. But the writer says here that just as that is true, some of them have have gotten into this habit of not meeting together. The opposite is also true, that going to church can become a habit. It can become something that is so entrenched and so a part of your life that to not go feels like you've missed something in your day. Your day's not right. Your week's not right. Something's out of whack, out of alignment because you've missed the fellowship of the brothers and sisters. And you've missed the opportunity of being able to spur one another on and be spurred and encouraged and challenged. You miss it because it's become such an integral part of your life. Uh, There's a powerful story, and I want to read this. It's by a guy called Philip Hale. He wrote about a little village called La Chambon in France. Did I get that right, Francis? A town whose people, unlike others in France, hid their Jews from the Nazis. 
Hale went there wondering what sort of courageous, ethical heroes would risk all to, such extra, to do such extraordinary good. And he interviewed people in the village and was overwhelmed by their ordinariness. They weren't heroes or smart or discerning people necessarily. And he came to the conclusion that one factor that united them was their attendance Sunday after Sunday at their little church where they heard the sermons of Pastor Trockme, I think. Over time, they became by habit people who just knew what to do and did it. And when it came time for them to be courageous, the day when the Nazis came to town, they quietly did what was right. And I love this bit. One old woman who faked a heart attack when the Nazis came to search her house later said, Pastor always taught us that there comes a time in everyone's life when a person is asked to do something for Jesus. And when our time came, we knew what to do. That's cool. Spurring one another to love and to good deeds. Then we come to this section, this last part, where he gives us this rationale. He says, do all of this that I've said. Keep coming to God as your father. Keep encouraging one another. Keep holding on and trusting in God's character. Why? And do all this all the more because the day is approaching. As you see the day approaching, that refers to the day of judgment, the day of the coming of the Lord. And it's picking up all of the Old Testament thinking of the day of the Lord. And that day had two focal points. Blessing and judgment. And here we see him talking about both of these. So the rationale he gives, he gives two rationales. One is a negative one. And he says, do all of this. Hold on to your faith. Continue to be faithful. Continue to respond to God's word. Why? Because judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. And from verse 26 Onwards, he talks about deliberately sinning after we have received the knowledge of truth, that there is no sacrifice for sin. And he talks about how the Lord will judge his people, verse 30. It is mine to avenge, I will repay. Verse 31, it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. This is sobering and challenging, but it's not new. In, in Hebrews chapter 4, he's already told us that one day we're going to have to give account to the one who sees all. That our hearts are laid bare before him and we'll have to stand and give an account. So no one can escape. No one can hide. We can pretend in church, but the one who sees all knows all. And so he gives this rationale saying, look, you can fool me. You can pretend. You can keep coming to church. You can keep doing your church and your religious duty. But the Lord knows who are his and he picks up Jesus' teaching where he says there's wheat and there's tares and weeds. And they're in the church and they grow up side by side. There's good fish and bad fish. There's sheep and there's goats. And they're there side by side and they look identical. But the Father will separate. The Father knows. And it picks up Jesus' teaching in John 15, which has been our theme passage for this year. And the very first couple of verses, Jesus says the gardener, the Father, God, will come and examine the branches. And all those branches in Him, in Christ, that are unfruitful will be cut off, dry up, and thrown in the fire. Sobering, challenging, confronting words. But the writer says, that's a rationale for us to make sure that we're not fooling ourselves. That we won't on that day come before the Lord and say, Lord, did we not do this and do that? And Jesus will say, depart from me. I don't know you. He's using this to be a wake-up call, to smack them around and say, hold on. 
Because like the book of Revelation says, yeah, things are going to get bad and things are going to go from bad to worse and you'll be persecuted and you'll be intimidated and you'll be threatened and you'll be harassed. But to give up on Jesus is worse, so much worse. Because there is no other way. There is no other way. There is no other hope. There is no other sacrifice. Like Jesus said in John 14, he is the only way. And now that he's made this new and living way, don't turn your back on him. Don't walk away. Don't harden your heart. When you're sitting in church and you're hearing the word and you're hearing the conviction of the Holy Spirit, repent and respond and come to God. He's made the way. Don't keep sinning and deliberately hardening your heart and fooling no one but yourself. The second rationale he gives is the positive one. He says, hold on, hold on, even though it's difficult and it's tough and it's hard. Look, if you can jump up. Hold on. Why? Because Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. And he says, uh, remember verse 32, those older days when you did endure persecution, when you did give up stuff, when you were happy for, to lose your property and to be you know, defamed in public, you, you held on in those days. Well, keep holding on because Jesus is coming back. His coming is closer and nearer than that time around. So don't give up. And he says, don't throw away your confidence. It will be revo- rewarded, verse 35. In chapter 9, verse 28, he says, So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many, and he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. He's saying, hold on. Hold on, keep being faithful, keep persevering, keep responding to God, keep being obedient to His Word, keep responding in faith when the Holy Spirit speaks into your heart and into your mind, because that's what God has done. He set up a new covenant where He's put His Word in your heart and in your mind, and the Holy Spirit speaks in that place. Hold on. Yes, it's going to be hard. Yes, it's going to be difficult. Yes, there will be persecution. Yes, there'll be discouragement. Yes, there'll be seasons that are dry and frustrating and painful and difficult. Yes, 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 but hold on because Jesus is coming again. And when he comes, he will make all things right. He will renew all things. He will restore all things. And he's coming with his reward. And notice this last verse. He says, but we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. See, even though he, he talks about the judgment of God, he talks about this negative rationale, he's confident that the genuine believers, those who are truly God's people, will respond, will respond, and will not be the ones who walk away, will not be the ones who reject Christ, who trample on the blood and who insult the Holy Spirit. No. There'll be ones who will turn and be saved. And notice, you know, in in verse 26, he says, if we, he includes himself in those who can be deceived, among those who can harden their heart, among those who might not respond to God's word. See, because the threat, the danger is real for all of us, for all of us. But he's confident. He's so confident. But we do not belong to those who shrink back. We don't have to fear because Christ has done his work and the spirit of God is in our hearts. And he says, come on, church, hold on, hold on to Jesus. He's coming. It reminds me of Jesus' parables at the end of Matthew. I think it's 24 and 25. He talks about his second coming and he talks about being a master, like a master who's gone away and he entrusts his servants with responsibilities, duties. 
And he says, how good it will be for the servants that the master, when he returns, will find them doing what the master has asked them to do. To remaining faithful, to persevering, to continuing to do the word of the master. And Jesus says, how bad it will be for the servant who thinks, ah, oh, my master, he, I don't know when he's going to come back, you know, he's delaying, you know, I'm just going to live it up, I'm just going to do whatever, I'm going to reject his word, I'm going to mistreat my fellow servants, I'm going to just be a rotter. And Jesus says, how terrible it will be for that person, for that servant, because the master will come suddenly, and it will be a day of shame and regret for that servant. And the writer of Hebrews is using all of that to encourage to challenge, to spur on this church and say, come on, Jesus, our master, the one who has rescued us, the one who has redeemed us, the one who has brought us before the very throne room of God has come and he has made a way through his torn flesh. So come before him with worship, come before him with gratitude, come before him with full assurance of faith because our hearts have been sprinkled. We are clean. Our consciences are clean. Come before him. Why? Because he's coming again. He's coming again. So church, where are you at? Are you struggling? Are you ready to quit and give up? Are you going through persecution and hardship and harassment that just makes you think, man, this is all too hard? Are you discouraged? Are you afraid? Are you frustrated? Where are you at with your heart? Why don't you just take a moment, just bow your head and close your eyes and let the Holy Spirit just speak to you. As we've seen, it's the Holy Spirit that takes the Word of God and brings it alive in our heart. And I pray that the Holy Spirit will come and begin to speak right into your being this morning. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Worship you, Jesus. Why don't we stand together? Why don't we come before our Father? Every obstacle is removed. And maybe you're here and you haven't fully trusted Jesus to be your Lord and Savior. You can this morning. Why don't you in this moment reach out to Him and say, Father God, forgive me. I've been living as a rebel. I've been walking away from you even though I've been coming to church. Father God, forgive me. Search my heart. Cleanse me, purify me through the blood of Jesus. Bring me to yourself that I might be your child, that I might hold on to the hope of redemption and salvation, that I might be made perfect in Christ. Why don't you pray that prayer this morning? And if you're a Christian here and you've made that commitment to follow Jesus and you're struggling, why don't you reach out right now and say, God, I need your grace. I need your help. I need you to strengthen me, to hold firmly. And Christian, why don't we at morning tea look for ways that we can spur one another, encourage one another, pray for one another, build up one another, so that together we might hold firmly the hope that we profess until Christ comes again.
Thank you, Jesus.